He came in to lay down his life to serve others. And so Paul says, this is how we're meant to live in Christian community. We're to walk in the way of Christ. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Father, your word is eternal, and our lives are but a breath. So, Lord, we're asking that you, by your spirit, would illuminate this text to us this morning and bring encouragement and endurance and hope as your scripture is taught, as it's studied, as it's read, and as it's exposited. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bring illumination and encouragement today. So, Lord, be glorified in this time, and we thank you for the work of Christ, and we are able this morning to stand because of the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. And to that end, we say glory to God in the highest. And all God's people who agree said, amen. 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 Well, it's been said that Christians are like porcupines amassed together on a long, wintry night. So because of the cold, we desire to draw nearer to one another and to stay warm ourselves even as we warm each other. But as we start to draw near and huddle, the prickly spines of one another begin to dig into us, and so our reaction is to pull apart. And thus, the night is a long process of both huddling together and then pulling away. And many churches, many believers, sadly, fit this description. One of my favorite uh, terms to describe the church, the, the covenant community of grace, is the phrase, beautiful irritation. What do I mean by that? Well, the church gathering, we as believers are irritating. Why? Because we're annoying. People are annoying. And I can say that with a smile on my face because people are different than us. We want to get close to people and yet we start realizing they chew their food loudly and they talk loud or they have, uh, they, they, do they have any self-awareness whatsoever <laughs> to have said that? Or we say their opinion is just dumb. And so uh, the scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, you would expect the rest of that sentence to say, sparks fly, tensions build, there's pressure, there's heat exchange. And that certainly does happen when you put two pieces of metal close to one another. See, it's irritation, but it's beautiful irritation because at the same time, the scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, you guys know the rest, so one man sharpens another. So as we draw near to one another, we actually, we aren't dulled by each other, we are sharpened. And so this close contact with other like-minded yet distinct believers causes us, it does a work in us, causes us to be conformed, not to the image of one particular person or one particular group of people, but it causes us corporately to be conformed into the image of Christ. But in this section we've been studying, Paul does not tell us to soften the porcupine's barb nor does he stay, stay, stay away from the huddle in isolation because it's safe there. He, he doesn't tell us you need to fight for your rights or you need to leave a church if people don't agree with you. In fact, he admonishes us to stop focusing on ourselves altogether. 
and to look beyond ourselves to something greater. This morning we conclude this unique section in the letter of Romans where Paul has been addressing conscience and the Christian community. And we've been learning that the broader concept beyond chapters 14 and 15 is the application of Romans 12. How do I live a life that's pleasing to God as a living sacrifice together with God's people? And what we've seen is that love governs our lives as believers, as it fulfills the law. We've learned that we are to welcome the weaker brother, but we're not to despise the stronger brother. We've been learning that whatever we do, whether we abstain from certain liberties or we enjoy certain liberties, that we're to do this to the glory of God and that each one of us uniquely will stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Last week, Pastor Micah taught us in the second half of Romans 14 that we shouldn't, in our liberties, cause stumbling, we shouldn't cause grieving, we shouldn't cause devastation, that we should neither forget the witness that we have, nor should we destroy the work of God, but we actually should hold fast to our convictions in the midst of the community. And we learned last week how knowledge plus love can help that weaker brother or sister grow stronger. And this morning, we're going to see Paul bring it home, this whole discussion in verses 1 through 7. And what I want to encourage us to do is to lift our eyes far above our liberties, far above our consciences or our convictions, to our example, Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge us to see things, uh, see something far more important than our squabbles over festivals and food. There's something much greater, there's something much grander, there's something much more glorious that's at stake. And so with that in mind, we're gonna see these three sections today. If you're taking note in these seven verses, number one, we're gonna see the burden of the strong, verses one through three. Paul places the burden on the stronger brother. We're gonna see in verse four, a little aside that Paul does. He does this a lot. Sometimes they're very long, they're always amazing but this is a shorter one, very important one, and we'll look at the blessing of Scripture, and then we'll close it out with the benediction for solidarity. A benediction is a prayer. So some have called these three sections the exhortation and the reason and then the prayer, and I like that. So we're gonna see the exhortation, the reason for it, and then a prayer for the church. So if you're taking notes, we'll look at that first section, verse one. Notice he says, we who are strong have an obligation, we have a debt, we owe this, what? To bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Note with me that first of all, Paul places himself in the strong category. Now we've learned from chapter 14 that there's the weak and the strong. Who are the weak? The weak are ostensibly those who have a little bit narrower or stricter view of dietary restrictions or calendar observances. They're most likely ethnically Jewish, most likely raised to honor the Sabbath, to observe the feast days, and to abstain from non-kosher foods. But the strong, the strong is a different group, and that's not just the Gentile. No, this is someone who is no longer or not at all stumbling over those things, whether they were raised in Judaism or not. The strong has learned that those things are uh, a type and shadow of the things to come. And so the strong has the liberty, or you could say has the freedom, to enjoy shrimp on the barbie, or to work on the Sabbath, and they can enjoy these things, not just because that's enjoyable, but because they're doing it to the glory of God. 
And, and so notice though in verse one, who has the obligation? It's not the weak. It's not that the weak need to get with the program and stop being weak and stop being nonsensical. No, Paul puts the emphasis in the church, the obligation on the strong. Notice he says, we have an obligation to, here's the word bear, to bear with the failings of the weak. So would you circle that word bear? Uh, it is an interesting Greek word. The Greek word is bastazo. It's used 27 times in our New Testament. And almost every single time it means to carry something. So it's used literally when it's described in the Gospels that someone carried a pitcher of water or they carried Paul out of the assembly when they were trying to uh, stone him or put him to death. We read in John 19, 17, Jesus, Bastazo, he carried his literal cross. So it can be literal, but it's also used figuratively. So you know this verse in Luke 14, 27, Jesus said, whoever does not bear Bastazo, his own cross, and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we know Jesus carried a literal cross. That's what our faith is founded on. The fact that Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. So he carried a literal cross. And yes, uh, a number of Jesus' actual apostles, his disciples, did carry a literal cross to their own crucifixion. But Jesus is not meaning in Luke 14 that every disciple must bear literally a Roman cross, or you can't be his disciple. What does he mean there? This is a figurative carry. This is a figurative cross. You must bear the gospel. You must follow me in death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6 speaks of this. In fact, in Acts 9.15, Paul says, I'm a chosen instrument of the Lord to bastazo, to carry the name of Yahweh before the Gentiles, before kings, before many of the children of Israel. So that means Paul was bearing, he was carrying, he was upholding the name of God as he stood before different groups of people. So bastazo means to carry. It also is the word that can describe a mother's womb. Well, a mother's womb, how, what does it carry? It carries children. It bears children. It supports and uplifts children. So broadly, Paul is stating that we as the strong, we owe it, we have an obligation, we have a debt, to the weaker fellow believer in our fellowship to carry them, to provide support for them, to undergird them, to hold them up, to uplift them. So to the legalistic Galatian churches, Paul admonished them in Galatians 6.2 to, here's the word, bastazo one another's burdens, bear one another, carry one another's burdens, and in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we are called to do. But notice that Paul describes the weaker Christian scruples as failings. This is an area of discipleship that our weaker brothers and sisters need our supporting because they're failing in these areas. I, I love that Paul does not say, you who are pastors, you who are elders, who are deacons, who are leaders, you should bear with the, the failings of the weak. No, he says, we, we who are strong. If you're strong in the faith, meaning you understand diet and days, you understand these secondary matters are not primary matters, you're growing in discipleship, we have the, the obligation, the debt that we owe, not to spectate, but to support, to proactively come alongside a brother who's struggling in his conscience and say, hey, you're weak in this area, you're failing, let me come alongside you, let me bear this, uh, this problem for you. If you know of a sister who continues to stay in that weak 
and failing place in her undeveloped growth in Christ. That's not something you gossip about. That's something you bear as much as you bore your own children in your womb. You see, this is a comprehensive, caring, Christ-like sense of bearing. Morris says it this way, this does not mean the church is ruled by the whims of the weak. A genuine concern for the weak will mean an attempt to make them strong by leading them out of their irrational scruples so that they too can be strong. We're to come alongside. It's, it's an obligation we owe to help support those and lift them up. I, I learned this week that a flock of geese is the, the wrong terminology. It's not, it's not known as a flock of geese. If you take trivia or do trivia, it's actually known as a gaggle. Who knew? So a gaggle of geese is a large group of geese that fly in formation. And I found it interesting that the average goose can fly about 40 or 50 miles an hour uh, on its own. And yet when it's in formation, what happens, and the reason they they do this V formation is because the front goose will flap its wings. And when it does this, it produces an updraft for for the goose behind it. And that produces an updraft for the goose behind it. And so as they fly in formation, scientists have observed that geese can go 70% further in a gaggle than they can on their own flying on their own. And I like that picture. We are to, we are to uplift one another. We're to, we're to see those failings and say, how can I come alongside my brothers and sisters in Christ? Notice that he says, you have an obligation. You owe it. It's the same word he's been using throughout the book of Romans to pay a debt. And now notice in verse 2, he zooms out to everyone. Whether you're weak or strong, verse 2, let each of us Please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's the how. How are we to live? We're not to live selfishly, but the New King James Version says that this leads to edification. It's to edify. It's to help build up. That's the how. And then the why is found in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so we'll get to that in a minute. But what does Paul mean by pleasing his neighbor? What does that mean? Does that mean we go around in the church making sure everything we do is approved by everyone, everyone likes us? By the way, if you're seeking just to be liked, and that's your whole end game, stop what you're doing and sell ice cream. (laughs) Or more theologically accurate, sell donuts. And then I will love you. That's not what he's talking about. He's not, listen, he's not talking about the fear of man, which is a sin, being a man pleaser. I just want to do everything that, that makes people like me. And, and no, no, he's not talking about that. He's showing the contrast of seeking to please ourselves, verse one, being self-centered, versus seeking to please others, verse two, being others-centered. Commentator Christopher Ash says, it's worth pausing to note that pleasing ourselves is what causes human community to fracture on every scale. From the marriage or family arguing about what TV program to watch, or what to do on a holiday, right up to nations fighting to preserve their own interests. We see that happening globally today. Pleasing ourselves destroys peace and harmony. You and I have seen that in a Christian. We've seen that in a church. When someone doubles down and says, no, I'm here to please myself. I'm here to get something out of this. I'm here not for your benefit and your edification, but for number one. Now, now, as parents, you can relate to this, certainly. You know what it's like to have a self-centered child, do you not? Nod your head if you agree with me. You have children. It's okay. If you don't have children, then this doesn't relate to you, but maybe this was you growing up. Um, 
self-centered, other-centered. You, you as a parent have a child with a toy, and that toy has been invisible for the last 23 and a half hours. But you invite another family over, and their child finds the toy, and your child sees the other child playing with their toy, and it's Armageddon, right? This has happened to you. We have a self-centered mindset versus an other-centered mindset. Now, church, it may not be Tonka trucks. It may not be dolls or toys. But what about when someone else is recognized for leadership? What about when someone in Bible study presents a different view on these secondary issues that you grew up believing? You see, it's very easy for us to say, oh, I've got this check. I'm good. And yet, Paul reminds us, let each of us live in a way that pleases our brother and sister, not ourself. And then he shows us the example of Christ. In fact, not only does he do that here in Romans, but he does that to the church in Philippi. We read a portion of this, uh, the second half of this verse when we were singing earlier, but Philippians chapter two, starting in verse one, here's what Paul said to the church in Philippi. He said, so if, and this is, a, this is more of a since, so since, or if there's any encouragement in Christ, assuming there is, if there's any comfort from love, assuming there is, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's a unity here. And then he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or nothing from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look. So there's an idea of looking, gazing. Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul goes on there to speak uh, of Christ's example, and he does the same thing here in Romans 15. Notice that Christ is not only a model for us, but a motive. Uh, look at what he says. He says, for Christ, Christ did not come to please himself. And then he quotes Psalm 69.9. He says, but it is as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, stay with me for a minute. Let me quote directly from Psalm 69, seven through nine. So this is verse seven through nine. He says, for it is for your sake that I've borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers an alien to my mother's sons for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a messianic Psalm, Psalm 69. It's quoted at least four times in our New Testaments. Often the first half of verse nine is quoted about Jesus going into the temple. You've, you've heard that verse before where zeal for his father's house consumes him. And yet in context, David is writing this, singing about how he himself is a righteous man who is suffering unjustly to the extent that he's being uh, ostracized by his family, he's being criticized, and he's being dishonored because Why? not just because of his own actions, but because he's standing in the stead of Yahweh. He's saying, you guys are, are reproaching Yahweh, and yet I have such a zeal for Yahweh that it's as if I am standing in his place bearing the reproaches he was given. In fact, John Stott says this relates to Christ in this way. He says, Christ so completely identified himself with the name, will, cause, and glory of the Father that insults intended for God fell Upon him. So you guys see why Paul's quoting this? It might seem a little bit disjointed at first, but stay with me. Let's follow Paul's train of thought. He's saying, Christ didn't come to please himself. 
But as John 8, 29 says, I only do the things that are pleasing to the Father. And so in Psalm 69, David is singing about those who torment him and are persecuting him in part because of his faith in Yahweh. He's not there for himself. He's there to stand before God. And in this, to the extent that David took the reproaches of God upon himself, Paul is linking that to Christ. So Christ came, and he didn't just come to live for himself, represent himself. He came to represent Yahweh, but also to care for others. So when people reviled him, you know, he didn't revile back. When others demeaned him, when they maligned him, even his own family didn't believe him. That didn't ever dissuade him from his face set like a flint towards Calvary. It didn't dissuade him from pleasing the Father. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. And as he submitted himself to the Father, that included even bearing the reproach meant for the Father and for others upon himself. And see, Paul is saying, this is how we bear one another's burdens. We don't come in going, and we know Christ didn't come into the scene, like, all right, I'm here, it's time to worship me. He came in to lay down his life, to serve others. And so Paul says, this is how we're meant to live in Christian community. We're to walk in the way of Christ. We're to, as Stott says, identify with the name, the will, the cause, the glory of the Father to such an extent that we're no longer squabbling, counting our lives dear to ourselves, but nothing's moving us because we're bearing with others' failures, with other people's weaknesses. We're carrying them as if they're our very own because like Christ, we're not living to please ourselves. We're living to please the Father and others. There's a lot here. This is this is Christian discipleship. This is body life. This is bearing one another's issues, their struggles, their confusion, their immaturity. We're coming alongside them as Christ came into the world incarnate to bear our own sin. Now, in verse 4, Paul takes a parenthetical rabbit trail. Like I said, these are always amazing, sometimes very long-winded, sometimes one long sentence. This is a short one, but it's equally powerful. So let's look at the second section, just verse 4, the blessing of Scripture. Paul steps aside, thinking of Psalm 69 and David. And then he steps back and says, you know what? Man, Scripture is so encouraging. So he says in verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So yes, he's thinking Psalm 69.9 and how he, David, bore the reproaches of others, of Yahweh, uh, and as if he were Yahweh himself, he was bearing it. And so he's thinking, David wrote that hundreds of years prior to this, but he's simultaneously thinking, wow, you know what? What was written in antiquity continues to both instruct and encourage believers throughout all time. And so I want to just encourage you, there is a direct link between the people of God and God himself, where God's revelation, this link between God and his people, this link is revelation, where God brings endurance and encouragement down to his people, and this causes to spring up adoration and praise and obedience and glory back up to God from his people. This link, this revelation is the scriptures. In fact, from this verse, John Stott gives five important truths about scripture. I don't typically uh, quote 
commentators, you know, in, in a lot of their main points, but I thought these are super helpful for me just from this one verse. So I'd love for you to jot these down or you can take a photo of the screen. By the way, we also include all of the slides from the sermons because they come up and go away pretty quick. Uh, we put those on our website, thisisshoreline.com. But l- notice these five things. Number one, from this verse, note the contemporary intention. So though it was written in the past, the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to have a timeless message for every generation. Someone says, oh, the Bible's not relevant to 2022. Well, you haven't read the Bible. The Bible is incredibly relevant where we're at today. Now, thankfully, this is the inspired eternal word of God and not just a dead history book. Because if it were, that would be an episode of insanity to open up a history book of dental uh, advice from the 6th century BC and say, your dentist says, hey, you know what? I found something from the 6th century I'm gonna try on you today for your root canal. (laughs) See, this is proof that God's word is living active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We learn that scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's contemporary intention. But secondly, he mentions the inclusive value. Notice Paul says everything written in the past is for our instruction. No, he doesn't mean everything in history. He's not saying everything in Josephus and Plato is written for our, no. But everything in the scriptures, inspired by God, is for our instruction. Some have heavier weight than others. There are some passages that are much more punchy than a genealogy. Uh, But even just a quote from a half verse in Psalm 69 can be valuable to us. So it's inclusive value. Thirdly, Christological focus. We'll talk about this in our communion time later. But the scriptures testify of Jesus. The Bible is for us, but the Bible isn't about us. It's about Jesus, amen? Christological focus. Then he says, number four, practical purpose. Notice that he says the scriptures encourage us or instruct us, but they also through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures bring hope. So there's a practical purpose to us as believers when we open God's word. If I talk to a Christian and they're like, I'm just living in total despondency, total darkness, total discouragement, I have no hope, then I would say, okay, time out. Have you made it a habit to open God's word and meditate on it regularly? Because if, if you're walking in lack of hope and discouragement, then I would question, do you have a regular time of studying God's word. It has a practical purpose of encouraging and giving us hope. But finally, he says a divine message. So notice with me in verse four, he mentions the encouragement and the endurance. And then in verse five, he uses those words to describe God. He says in verse five, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Uh, And so when scripture speaks, God speaks. I've said this before. It's a famous quote from Justin Peters. But if you want to hear God speak to you, open your Bible. And if you want God to speak to you audibly, read your Bible out loud. (laughs) It has a divine message for us. And so the question is, how do I live a life of hope in the midst of a despairing and dark, uh, fearful day in history? Well, through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures. But let me draw one thing to your attention, church. In context, Paul here is speaking of the Old Testament. And so there are some today who would seek to unhitch from the Hebrew scriptures. And they would say, oh, no, that, that Old Testament, that's Old Covenant. It's irrelevant. It's, 
It's nonsensical. It doesn't apply anymore. And they would say, just, just teach from the New Testament. Just read from the New Testament. That's all that we need. And sadly, some pastors and churches will only teach from the New Testament rather than heralding Christ from the volume of the book. And those with that view would get an earful from the Apostle Paul. Paul says everything written in the past, speaking of the Old Testament. Uh, and so clearly they'd get an earful from him. They'd get an earful from me, not that I'm anyone. But they'd also get an earful from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Here's what he said. He said, the apostle declares that the Old Testament scriptures are meant to teach New Testament believers. Things written aforetime were written for our time. And so consider what we have in the Old Testament. We have much in the Old Testament. Some would say, well, the God of the Old Testament is angry and judgy, and the God of the New Testament is love and sparkles. And so they clearly have never opened the Old Testament because in the Hebrew scriptures, we learned there's a creator God, Yahweh, who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving faithfulness. He's just and true. In fact, we learn in the Old Testament about the utter ruin of man, his incapacity to meet God's holy standard. And yet we were created as God's image bearers to rule the earth and to fill it with the knowledge of God. We learn in the Old Testament how God selected one nation, Abraham, to be his own special people, but how uh, the people of Israel failed to be loyal and faithful to the faithful God of the promise. We learn how God essentially provided a means to cover man's sin but all of this sacrificial system foreshadowed how he'd put a final end to our sin through the redemptive work of his lamb, Jesus Christ. And we learn in the Old Testament how a remnant of God's people endured trials by God's grace and they were justified by faith. We read about Abraham and we're encouraged to endure. We read about Joseph and Moses and David and Nehemiah and Esther and Daniel and we see the endurance and the encouragement of their faith. And see, Paul says these writings were written to produce in us a persevering faith where this cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 encourages us to stay strong in the God of hope. And so all of this is found in the Old Testament. Is the Old Testament relevant? What would you say? Okay, that was weak. It should be a yes. <laughs> yes and amen. You see, that's what our final section concludes with. Verses five through seven is Paul's prayer. He turns from the scriptures that are encouraging and encourage us, encourage us to endure and have hope to now the God of endurance and encouragement. Notice verse five. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in summary to all these things, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Accept one another. Welcome. Welcome one another in as Christ has welcomed you. So this last section, this is a benediction. This is a, a prayer. And what is Paul praying? He's praying that the God of encouragement and endurance will grant this harmony to the church. Now, if you've uh, missed this, you've missed a lot, uh, I want to make sure we emphasize this. Everything from Romans 12 onward has been an emphasis of something that we are not encouraged to just muster up in our own strength. That we just, in our own sanctified strength, are gonna just make this happen. No, we are encouraged 
right here, Paul prays that the God of endurance and encouragement, that he would be the one who's granting this harmony. So God's the one who's doing this work. And so I just want to remind us, this is all supplied to us by the Spirit of God, uniting us together because of the gospel of God, as we're taught by the word of God to the glory of God. So let me repeat that. All of this is possible, this unity is possible because it's been supplied to us by the Spirit of God, uniting us together because of the gospel of God, taught to us in the word of God, all to the glory of God. So who gets the glory in this? Good, you guys are way better in first service, yeah. God gets the glory. I don't get the glory. Uh, and so look at verse six. Notice with me the word together here. The, the Greek word together uh, is of one mind. If you were to translate it, one mind. And it's used at least six times in the book of Acts. And it first appears with the gathering of the church together in the upper room following Jesus's ascension. They were all together in one mind, in one gathering. Other translations say in one accord. The idea is that you're, you're in agreement with one another or you're unanimous. So think about how wonderful it is when we can all express something differently. We can express ourselves in Christ honestly. And yet in the end, there's not a thousand different verdicts, but there's one unanimous praise. There's one unanimous voice. You see, right before this, in verse 5, Paul had said that we are in accord with Christ Jesus. So listen, follow me. It's not that we just like, well, let's dumb down what we believe to the lowest common denominator for the sense or the desire for ecumenicism. Let's just get ecumenical and we all agree about the same thing. What do you agree? There's a God. Okay, cool. We're all united. No, no, that's not the idea that we just, we dumb everything down and just for the sake of unity, let's pull it together where we try to agree with, no, what he's saying here is that we are in one accord with Christ Jesus. So as we come together in Christ, he unites us. He brings us together. You see, I've quoted Tozer before, uh, this quote, one of my favorite quotes from him. But he says this, A.W. Tozer says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos are not trying to tune to each other, but all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord, by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. He says, so 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. That's what we have. We have that in Christ. We, we're in one accord in Christ Jesus. And notice, though, what is the end game of all of this harmony? What is the end game of all the welcoming and the building each other up and to bear and to help and encourage? Well, that's not an end to itself. There's a much bigger and better reason for all of this. It's found in verse 6. Notice with me. He says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the end game? Church, the end game is worship. The end game is bringing glory and worth together with one voice to our God. Why do we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us in verse 7? Why do we do that? It's for the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the demonstration or the manifestation of God's holiness. So in Isaiah 6, we hear these words. The angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his what? Glory. Glory. Very good. 
you'd expect him to say his holiness. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his holiness. You see, the glory of God is the expression or the demonstration, the appearance of God's holiness. It's being able to see it tangible and in front of us. So when we put others first, when we follow the example of Jesus who bore the reproach of Yahweh on himself and he sought not to please himself but to please others, when we do that in the fellowship, we fill the earth with more of the glory of God. People come into this fellowship from a broken and battered community and they come in and they go, wait a minute, I see the unity that's here. And they say, ultimately, I see the godness of God, how God is set apart, how he's wondrous, how he's good, by how we welcome one another. You see, when we're in accord in or with Christ Jesus, we as a church unified do this together with one voice, with one voice. Now, does that happen corporately when we gather together on the Lord's Day and we have a precious and unique and sacred assembly? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely happens with one voice. There's a lot of different voices, a lot of different harmonies, and yet we have one voice together. It happens then, but it also happens when we welcome one another, when we receive one another from distinct perspectives on these secondary issues, and yet in the midst of it, we're pursuing harmony. See, God is glorified in our one-mindedness. Godet says it this way, this union for Paul was in a sense his personal work and the prize of his apostolic labors. How his heart must have leaped, having already, by the anticipation of faith, the hymn of saved humanity. He says, it's the part of every believer, therefore, to make all the advances and all the sacrifices which love demands in order to work for so magnificent a result. You see, there's lots of ways we can apply this text, but this text, as it's been in the last few weeks, is itself the application of a church community that is living as living sacrifices. So as we close today, at least the sermon, before we move into a time of singing and communion, um, I want to draw our attention to fix our eyes on three things, to fix our eyes again above our consciences and our convictions to something greater, more glorious. I want us to behold the Spirit of God, the word of God, and the glory of God. So number one, as we conclude this time, may we look to the spirit of God. The spirit of God is who supplies endurance and encouragement. I've been a little bit surprised to hear recently how many people statistically today are struggling with anxiety, with discouragement, with defeat, with despair. And I want to encourage you to ask the heavenly father to pour out his Holy Spirit upon you. The Bible commands us to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not a one-time filling. This is something that we continue to rely on and yield to. The God of endurance and encouragement will grant us harmony if we would just ask, we would submit, we would receive. Father, fill me with your Spirit. I need to be a witness. I need to be loving to one another. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. So, Father, Strengthen me by your spirit. Supply that endurance and that encouragement. Give me hope in the midst of a time in our culture where there's nothing but anxious despair. So may we look to the spirit of God. Secondly, may we look to the scriptures which supply instruction and hope. You see, these things were written in the past for our instruction and our hope. So if you're here and you're downcast, you're ignorant to what the Bible says, you're lacking wisdom, for a certain scenario, or you're lacking hope itself. Well, may your heads be lifted up as you study God's word.
If there's a Christian who neglects a daily reading of Scripture, that in effect is saying, you're in effect saying, I am not in need of your revelation today, God. I am too busy or I'm uninterested to hear from you. Now, we don't intend to do that, but what happens is we run out of the home and yet fill our minds with the voices of a thousand other counselors, and then we wonder, why am I lacking in understanding God's word applied to this situation? And why am I lacking persevering hope in a dark and despairing circumstance? Well, because we're lacking uh, receiving from his word. So look to the scriptures which supply instruction and supply hope. And finally, number three, I want to encourage us as a church to look beyond yourself, whatever liberty you feel you have. That's my right. Look beyond your convictions. This is the way you're supposed to follow God. Look beyond these secondary things to behold the glory of God. You see, the end game of unity is not (laughs) up in the hills in a monastery away from the world singing kumbaya in a circle. That's That's not what unity Uh, is to produce. The end game is the tangible reality of God's holiness in the world. It's to glorify God in a world that right outside these doors is a tribal, divisive, self-centered, opinionated, and stubborn place. We have the opportunity to be countercultural, to have the world look upon us and say, there is not just something different about you. There is something wildly different I don't know what it is that produces this hope in you and this sort of fellowship, but I want some of that. So my question for you to consider is how can God be glorified with the people here at Shoreline with whom you would never naturally ever hang out with or get along with? How can God be glorified in that fellowship? How can I bring God glory through my liberty as well as my conviction? As we close this time, I'm going to invite our worship team forward, and in a moment we're going to sing together, confess sin, and then we'll uh, take communion together. The the, uh, ushers will distribute the communion elements during the song, so stay seated and just remove. There's a set of two cups. There's a juice on top and bread underneath. You just take that out and hold on to it. And we're asking only for those who have been baptized and who are following Christ, only Christians to partake, to receive. If you're not a Christian here today, we're glad you're here but we would ask you to let the trays pass by you, but don't let, the, don't let the, the grace of God pass by you. We want to encourage you to receive the gospel. This morning, the scriptures tell us that Yahweh, the creator God, who's perfect, made all things good. And yet Adam rebelled and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and because of that, sin entered the world, and because of that, the curse of sin, death, Death came to all men because of Adam's sin. But God, the scripture says, is rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus took our place. He was crucified, buried, and he rose again on the third day, forever conquering sin and death. And so we sing about his finished work by paying the price of our sin and we celebrate the glorious gospel of his resurrection every time we partake of communion. These elements we're about to receive remind us of his broken body and his poured out blood. So if you're here today, you've never repented of your sin, turned from your sin, acknowledged it, 
you've never received Christ's finished work on your behalf, we implore you today, turn from your sin and receive the gospel. Receive Christ. Christ will transfer you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, from death and eternal separation from God to being accepted in the beloved, being adopted as a son and daughter, of receiving abundant fellowship and true living hope. So church, let's pray together. As the elements are distributed, hold on to them. I'll lead us in a time of confession and prayer, and then we'll partake of communion. So bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, we're asking this morning that you would remind us that we're to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. We thank you that you didn't treat us as our sins deserved, but Lord, as far as the East is from the West. You've taken our sins from us. Lord, we declare this morning that Jesus paid it all. And so, Lord, as we reflect on that, we bring to you our sin, our sorrow, our shame, our guilt. Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, would you do that work of redemption in their hearts today? Illuminate them. Bring them from death to spiritual life. Lord, in all of us, Work these things out by your spirit as we've studied your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.